So I think we'll get started, everyone. Welcome to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series called the Colloquium. It's nice to see, oh, sorry, a few new faces. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'm Don Rodriguez Ward, and I co facilitate this with Jen Baltzigar. And we're very excited about our speaker today. Um, and we'll have our Ag Biofuse fellow introduce our speaker. But before we do so, um, just to keep the suspense, I wanted to remind you of the slide deck uh, and some of the events that are coming up. So we're going to have another in person uh, colloquium on March 21st. It's going to be Dr. Latifa Jackson. And that's part of the two-day series, Genes and Society, Decolonizing Human Genetic Research. And that's in coordination with uh, the GGA, uh, Genetics and Genomics Academy, uh, BAA, uh, and GES. And so I just want to remind you that that's in person. We'll also have uh, time to meet with her for lunch. And then the night before, on March 20th, there will be a nice fireside chat with her at the, you remind me, Library in the Hill Library. So everyone has, most people have received uh, invites. And if you have not, please let me know. I'd be happy to send you a calendar invite for some of these events. And um, yeah, I just want to remind you tomorrow, there's also the uh, Equity Research Symposium uh, on campus at Tally Union. And it starts at 8 30 and it goes for the full day. And the GES Center, along with uh, individuals from forestry and environmental resources, applied ecology, um, the uh, student run and created field inclusive um, representatives. Um, we're going to be having a special uh, discussion tomorrow. It's called Dialogue Creating Safe and Inclusive Space in the Field. And so I uh, welcome people to come join us if you have time. It's at 1.45 until 3 o'clock at Tally Union. Um, but also check out the Equity Research Symposium. They have a lot of different discussion groups and community conversations that are going on. So uh, just to update you on that. And without further ado, I will, I'll have Nolan Riker, uh, Ag Biofuse, PhD student, as well as PhD student from CRDM, introduce this week's speaker. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here today. It's nice to see you. <laughs> a full house. Um, I'm going to keep this introduction brief, but I also thought it worth mentioning that I probably could have spent like the whole hour covering um, everything that our speaker has, has accomplished. So um, Dominique Broussard comes to us from the University of Wisconsin um, as one of the most prolific science communication researchers um, in the country, if not the most, most prolific. Um, she, in the past two decades, she has um, authored over 100 articles uh, on topics ranging from climate change. COVID-19, new media, uh, public perceptions of science and technology, risk communication, nanotechnology, misinformation, um, scientists' public engagement, citizen science. Uh, They're all related, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a common trend. Yeah. Um, the, list, the list really goes on. Um, as it pertains specifically to this group, Dominique has been um, equally prolific on topics of biotechnology, including um, human genome editing, GM crops, food bioprocessing, synthetic biology, um, and CRISPR. Uh, this can all be found across uh, a number of reputable outlets like science, nature biotechnology, uh, the CRISPR journal, the Journal of Responsible Innovation, um, and several others. Uh, as some of us know, she served as an expert panelist on the 2016 uh, NASM report on genetically engineered crops, 
since then, she's published um, a handful of articles in National Academy's Proceedings um, and worked closely with our own Fred Gold on a couple things. Uh, and today, in addition to all that, uh, Dominique serves on multiple executive committees and advisory um, boards, including NASM's Climate Communication Initiative, NASM's Board on Life Sciences, uh, the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences, um, and she's also the chair um, of the advisory committee of social, behavioral, and economic sciences at the NSF. <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually left some things out. I do work sometimes. <laughs> yeah, with that, uh, please, please join me in welcoming you. Thank you, Nolan, for that very kind introduction. So, Broadly goes through controversial science topic. Uh, it's my favorite topic to study. I mean, so I have a lot of work to do. And then indeed, like, you know, we've been working more and more on the new media environments. Is, they're not so new anymore, right? So it's my pleasure to be with uh, you today. Uh, and uh, I really uh, thank Fred. It was always a pleasure to see Fred and everybody else at the GES for welcoming today. Such a warm uh, uh, welcome that it really makes me so happy to be able to join you in person. So i uh, you know, I asked Fred what you wanted me to talk about, and he says that you can talk about whatever you want. And as Laura said, I can talk about a lot of things. So I'll try to be brief so we can engage in a, a discussion. But I, I thought I would actually just uh, share with you the issues that trouble me as somebody that, uh, you know, that uh, that study communication, genetics, probably construed, and a wide range of other topics. I think. But anyway, so yes, former life, uh, you know, I was actually in plant breeding, plant genetics, the early times of GMOs, literally, when I was doing my master's, I thought I was going to save the world with uh, 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 GMOs, but became uh, quickly more interested in understanding why people like or don't like those technologies. I actually grew up around the world. I was born in Argentina, French parents, I went to France to a uh, to, to, to go to a agronomic engineering school. And I was very surprised to see, like, literally, that, like, you know, things that people like somewhere in the world are disliked somewhere else. And for different reasons. And some things that are acceptable, progressive mind in some part of the world that actually found outrageous in other parts of the world. So the role of values in actually informing people's attitude has always been uh, something that was really keen in studying. And obviously, with my early career in the, on, on GMOs and so on, uh, you know, always uh, found, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, like to, 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 to dwell into like the genetic engineering thing. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, it's always reappearing, right? That it's not like this is something, as we all know in this room, you know, technology that been around since the 80s uh, have been used uh, here and there for different reasons. But uh, whenever, you know, used in different contexts, may or may not be you know, used for various reasons. Here you can see, but wider use of its risk may be intrusive and so on for the first genetic modified tree have been planted in US forests. So what are the challenges, right? Why, why do we still need to study a technology or what sh why should we study from a social science perspective? And I'm not gonna dwell into the science perspective, the life science, health science, but more from a social science perspective. First of all, there is still that need, that more information, explaining the science and so on, is the key to misinformed publics. I don't, you know, all of you in the room know that, 
But unfortunately, people outside of this room do not know that. And I mean, and it's really a plea for your help in trying to, you know, communicate to others that there's other ways to communicate because it's alive. It's a problem in policy circles, engineering circles, in the natural resource circles, that always that understanding that knowing about the science issue, understanding the science will actually make people support it or not. First of all, maybe we shouldn't support the science all the time, right? And second of all, there's way more into people's attitude because people do not use only knowledge, but also use mental shortcuts and so on to make sense of things that are complicated. But we still haven't figured out how to communicate about the knowledge deficit model. And I think in my circles, we, you know, we take it for granted. People say, oh, it's the knowledge deficit. I'm like, yes, but how do you convince others that's not the case? And I challenge that as a topic of research, actually, because what we have done is we decided this doesn't work, let's go move on. How do you actually convince people that this is not working? It's something we haven't paid attention to. So I think it's uh, important. Yes, indeed, we know that people make sense of information through different filters. We know that information capacity you know, is something that people uh, you know, like, uh, uh, assess intuitively, I would say. Uh, you know, how much information do we need to reach a decision? Well, sometimes very little information reach a very good decision. And sometimes extremely rational thinking may lead to the wrong decision, depending on what decision you're looking at and depending what's the goal of uh, uh, that you're trying to achieve. There's been a lot of focus on how media cover issues and social media and says because of the media, because of the journalists, it's because of the social media and so on. Not useful either, because obviously they're part of the problem and they're part of something that we should uh, uh, study, but definitely not the, the only you know, way people get those heuristics I was talking about. And finally, you know, the new thing is that the interpretations fit within the belief system and the value of people that hear whatever you have to say. That New York Times article that I've shown you with that headline will be interpreted a certain way by people that read it, but most likely you in the room, you know, will not interpret it the same way and somebody else, and certainly among the, those of you in the room, you will interpret it differently. And uh, then we have a lot of research, right, on all these things. And we know also that the, all these depends on the context. And so what uh, depends on the context, we need to know who we're talking to, in which context, for what goal, and so on. Can we draw, obviously we can, but can I turn it to the communication professor in the room? Can we draw some trends in here that are useful to actually let us explain that the deficit knowledge does not help? Can we use this structure to communicate to the engineer that the knowledge deficit model does not help? Actually, we can. And you know how we do that? We use it the knowledge deficit model. <laughs> <laughs> I've been part of a big project on nanotechnology, social implication nanotechnology with engineers. And I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, asked by a colleague to convince engineers that they needed my help. And then he told me, I know, you know, you're an agronomy, you know, there are a lot of biometry and so on. Can you bring a big fat model with a lot of statistics? I'm not sure I can't. And so therefore I showed that knowledge accounted for a very small amount of variance. And they were like, oh. So the problem that I'm trying to illustrate here is like, we shouldn't say the knowledge deficit model. Yes, sometimes knowledge convinces people. 
We shouldn't draw those very simplistic monolithical explanations for how the world uh, works because we're gonna then reach an impasse. However, I am, so challenge number one that I wanna share with you, how do we actually deal with that knowledge deficit? Challenge number two, my role is not to persuade, well, I want to persuade you that, that what I'm saying is true, but apart from that, my role is not to persuade you about you know, gene engineering and so on. However, we still see you know, a lot of aspects where we have to improve people's perception. We have to educate and actually to improve their perception. We don't improve perceptions. Perceptions are perceptions. We may change them in a way that fit, that fit our own agenda, but that's not uh, you know, something that uh, potentially we want to do. So I would challenge us also to challenge those that have this kind of discourse, because I think it's really not something helpful in the context of uh, responsible innovations. And I know that all of us in this room, we are keen on making sure we have responsible innovations that help us have an equitable, you know, diverse and resilient society. So this is another thing that really makes me cringe when I see this kind of thing here. But we can talk about that later. I cannot see my title. The challenges. The challenges. The challenges. Thank you. The challenges. So talk more specifically of three things that really annoy me right now, and you can push back at the clinic. Number one, is it all a question of trust in science? Just you know about that. Number two, is it all a question of misinformation? And number three, what is that big picture we're gonna uh, you know, try to think about as we move forward? So let's uh, uh, first make it clear. As far as I'm concerned, science is a myth. There's no sign with the big S. I mean, there's no even one scientific method, Fred. I know that we argued about this before, but there isn't. So there is a lot of scientific discipline that come with their own bias. I know we have a lot of STS people in the room, so you know all about construction of scientific knowledge and so on and so forth. But however, the problem that we have, it's very easy to find a simple solution to a complex problem. And what that ends up doing is actually being, I would say, a little offensive to a number of people. And I'm gonna illustrate my point. So this, uh, we did a, a trend on uh, uh, trust in scientific institution uh, published in 2019, but I added some data for 2021 here. And you can see that trust in the scientific community is high in the USA, but we can see indeed that partisan gap are increasing. Two ways to read that. Who we polarize? Nah. <laughs> Actually, what has changed a lot, yes, we may be polarized, but I think us as researchers, our goal is not always point to polarization. It's maybe point to bridges and not polarization. But in this room, I'm gonna talk to that in one second. It's, you can see that the gap among partisan is increasing here, but if you dwell a little more into those results, you're gonna realize that actually there's way more independence in the United States now than there used to be. That people that actually call themselves, you know, uh, Republican or Democrats are much more in the extreme and so on. That it may be more a divide around urban, rural than anything else. And I'll leave it that, but we can talk a whole hour about this. But very important to think about, yes, those trends matter, but what do they really mean? Because we cannot just say 
we should follow the science and we should trust the science. I think that was a mistake during COVID-19 and we, or, uh, and I hope you all agree with me, but we shouldn't repeat this mistake. We can just trust the science because as STF says it, you know, science is incredibly political. It may be used to, to uh, inform policy and it should, but it's not a science decision, it's a political decision. So just follow the science to some extent is moving the responsibility of the decision to the science community when at the end of the day, it's a political decision. And uh, we were very vocal with uh, a number of my colleagues, uh, Dixon Schultz and some uh, students. We wrote about this, uh, you know, in uh, the American scientists uh, that, uh, you know, try to stress that that idea that we say science is the public is not constructive. Number one, there's no, the science, number two, there's not one public, and we are the public. When I get out of my little sounds for science world, I become an annoying person, right? <laughs> like I, I'm a human being with all my fallacies, my bias, and all the shortcuts that we bring in understanding what people do. So the scientists search for public pathology, that idea that we say it's them, they're wrong, and it's because they don't trust that, it's because this and that and the other is unhelpful, unhelpful and ultimately unscientific. And I would say that particularly unethical. So we can talk more about that. And when you dwell more into the numbers, I mean, you can maybe not see here, you see that like among the 18, 19, 20, 21, there's been a decrease here, you see all those decreases, in trust in everything. So, I mean, there's just a mistrust in institutions among the American public that is, actually troublesome. I'm actually in a, in a panel with the CDC, how to restore trust in the CDC. <laughs> we should stop. And that, but that, and, that, and that actually, you know, look, elective officials going down, business leaders, journalists, gracious leaders, but it is troublesome that medical scientists, and as a matter of fact, if you look at everything, scientists are fair quite well compared to the others. So why are we hearing about that war in science that is really not helping the debate? So, but of course, trust matters, but the question is trust in whom? And as I was telling you, you know, CDC trust is going down, the trust in the CDC, but other uh, um, institutions as well. This is particularly important because it's obviously like something that comes out of COVID, but also FBI, EPA, and so on are going down the same way. So trust in those that are in charge in making us safe is decreasing. That's much more troublesome than just trust in science. How come we don't hear about that? Trust in the EPA. How come we hear about that? So I urge all of you, if you hear that trust in science, there's a warning says as well, what happened with our agency that are supposed to be in charge of policy regulations and so on? Does that matter more or not? And just so you know, by the way, at the same time, you know, like there's problems at the, you know, with the foreign policy and so on. So it is a big trust mess. But certainly is not one that science, whatever it is, owns in its own right. All right, I'm going fast because I want to, I was told to leave a lot of time for questions. Second one, the second thing that we hear a lot is all about misinformation. Thank you, WHO, you started this trend. <laughs> Basically, you know, now we have that whole saying, there's facts on one side, there's meat on the other, we need to correct the meat and so on. I'm not gonna like, you know, make it uh, uh, such a big, because you know it, that science is seldom always settled, right? 
I mean, it is for like a big tears, even them, you know, like, look, now you heard about, they found like uh, the oldest galaxy that's much older than we thought. And it uh, has implication of what we know about how the world started and so on. Well, you heard about it. Most people have heard about it, but it's interesting is that the idea that obviously science is incremental and that, uh, you know, and that uh, it has to be replicated and so on to be a theory. But so, the trend we see right now, and a lot of money in the social science is going into correcting misinformation. I see Jason, like, you know, shaking his head. And I may be preaching to the converted, by the way, here in this room, but correcting misinformation may be seen the point for different reasons. You, we know that, you know, and that's something uh, that we published in uh, that uh, G crop report for the National Academy with Fred, we had this uh, this graph there. Explain his public attitude to for novel science or you know a scientific issue is not only linked to individual characteristics, but it's also linked to the information climate, the media, the the, the, the entertainment, uh, uh, movies, education, media, and most importantly, the social, political, and cultural context. So NC, North Carolina, and Wisconsin share a lot of, uh, um, you know, characteristics, I found out. But still, when you look at, you know, the way people may react to PFAS or other type of, like, controversial science, I'm sure we're going to find things that are linked to the cultural context of the farmers and so on that are not particularly adaptable in Wisconsin. But the thing that's interesting, though, is that... You know, people, what they do, they're going to choose the science that support their viewpoint. It's too bad you cannot see my titles. <laughs> There's a great title there that says, <laughs> people choose the science that support their viewpoint. Uh, here, it's like actually an old website called Collective Evolution that put uh, 10 scientific studies proving GMOs can be harmful to human health. We know all those, right? Serenity and so on and so forth. So they're all there. And so what's interesting, if you go there, you see that uh, in November 2012, the Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology published a paper titled Long-Term Toxicity of a Random Herbicide. So this paper has been retracted. And here you see, the study has since been retracted, which is odd, because the journey was published, the very well-known, we put a peer-reviewed scientific journal. In order for a study to be published, it has to go through a rigorous peer review. What do you read there? It was retracted because there was, you know, there is like that idea that someone didn't want these good scientists to show that this was harmful. So what is conclusion reached by the readers of this blog that do not like GMOs or scared about it is that if it's retracted, it's because they tried to get at him. Not it is retracted because it's a bad study. We often assume that everybody knows how science works, which is, we did a study asking people how many knew what the retraction was. 10% of Americans. I had a speaker in a colloquium last week that actually studied Retraction Watch. Do you know Retraction Watch? Very good blog. So they're doing, they're doing actually a database of all the studies that have been retracted. And they also showed that some of those studies, they're more cited after the retraction. Mm -hmm. for thought. Mm -hmm. They're more psyched after they retract So we assume science is settled, other things that science is studying the way they want, right? So this is really an important uh doesn't work again. 
One of our Zoom participants, uh, Rita Herbert, says um, they work for Attraction Watch. Oh, good, good for them. <laughs> Say hi to Ivan. I will absolutely do that. I will let Allison and Ivan know that you mentioned them, and we will add you to our references on our blog. All right. Um, also, something that I wanted to, to, to bring to your attention is that correcting that misinformation can backfire. And uh, this is a study that was just published by a colleague of mine, students, colleague, in vaccines. And what they did is that they looked at um, the MIA vaccines. And again, this is not purely genetics, but it, it, it makes, obviously, it's related. The mRNA vaccine do not contain any live virus. Instead, they work by teaching our cells to make the chromic piece of spike protein, which is found on the surface of the virus that causes COVID-19. You know that this has like, you know, like um, elicit a lot of fear. The fact that, ooh, we have a live virus. I mean, it's gonna make us sick and so on, right? So uh, the it's been listed in the meta facts and corrected by saying that it does not contain, do not worry. So I might see the study where they had Four, experiment, four uh, experimental groups here. This is the WHO statement with the live vaccine. This is the one that corrects just the claim. Contrary to some false claim, my vaccine do not contain live virus. This one actually has a damage control. Live viruses are used safely. Right? And then this one is just the control and so on. So what happened? Well, what happened is actually, yes, indeed it corrected. The fact that people, you know, after, the stimulus found out that indeed it does co not contain live viruses. So that was good. What was not good, however, that increased the perception of the risk related to this. Unintended consequences of combating misinformation, of taking things simply, of thinking information processing is simpler than we think. And more importantly, the damage was even worse with the key audience. The individuals with low vaccine acceptance, their perception was even wider as past how risky this was. So I hope I convince you that when we combat misinformation, we needed to do it widely. And there's a lot of things to build upon in the science of science communication. I'm sure you have read a lot of those things that can help us do that. So in a nutshell, most often, it's not that people do not, they deny science. They just use the, the science that support the belief. And I think this is very important when we communicate. I mean, we shouldn't just discard the science that, and that, by the way, kudos to Fred here, because when we did that GE crop uh, consensus report, we did invite a lot of the interested publics, including Seralini and so on, to come talk to us, right? We, and, and explain the views and so on, and, and build our consensus report based on people's questions, not based on what we thought they should know. All right. A word on social media, because uh, I cannot talk about science community without social media. Obviously, people send things around. But the reason why they send that EP science, I'm not calling it mis misinformation, I call it that EP science, <laughs> is obviously because it matters worldview. Oh, I'm angry because these GMOs are, uh, I send it. But it could be any type of other confirmation bias that can be. But it can be also because it gives us hope. I work with the Alzheimer's Association in Madison. We have a big NIH. Uh, center there and I give talks to the, the families, they actually jump on anything that give them hope. Lately was microbiome is related to the, the, the health of your brain. So they were like asking, 
the scientists, how much yogurt should I give to my mother? I mean, I mean, you feel bad, but this is because it's not always because it's evil, so on, or it's just because if you're college students, because they are amusing and they send things around and we tell them, do not send things around. But we need to be told that human psychology is at play. And, but it's not the humans that are to blame, it's the algorithms. You know, I mean, what's the name of the uh, the famous chess player that was beaten by a computer? Yeah, Kasparov. Kasparov. We don't say, oh, evil Kasparov, you need to change your beliefs huh? because the computer beat you. We said, oh, wow, that was a good computer. Why don't we do the same for these things? It's not about, you know, trying to make people aware of what they do. It's more having a societal impact on those intelligent algorithms so they actually end up being ethically used and not perpetuating inequity and so on. And I, we're very vocal on the National Science Foundation to try to push that way. And hopefully we'll have more access to those algorithms because we, until now it wasn't really the case. I know you believe that and I agree with you and kudos to your center for like actually pushing interdisciplinary approach that could answer those big questions. But I'm gonna ask you, is that easy? No. Are we just saying interdisciplinary approaches and not? But in practice, have you been around the room with a bunch of people from other disciplines and really, really incrementally advanced? We need to train ourselves and our students to be able to talk to other disciplines, to exchange other disciplines, to listen to them, to reach a common ground. Because most of the time, those interdisciplinary teams, you know, and again, some work. Most of the time, people listen to each other, they get out of the room and they think their views is the best. <laughs> I mean, those social scientists, or those are scientists, or so on. So I would actually, that's again, I was telling you, I was going to share with you the things that bother me. This bothers me, and I don't have a good question. So it means that we need to get out of our comfort zone. We need to really get out of our comfort zone with other disciplines. We need to actually, and all the disciplines, needs to acknowledge they have to be vulnerable. And there's somebody in the room may know more than them, and they come from another discipline. So this is a new uh, area of study that uh, we embark in, scientific humility. Mm. How do we get out of our pedestal and actually being humble enough to be honest? And sometimes that could be a public group that knows more than us, right? So that's another thing that bothers me. And kudos to your program and my program. We have a minor in science communication. You have a minor in science communication, and you have your GS interdisciplinary thing. This is the way to go, to train the scientists of tomorrow to be able to have uh, those big uh, discussions. Now, the thing that bothers me is science moves very fast, and it's asserted by nature. And COVID, I was involved a lot in COVID communication, you know, was, you know, there was uncertainty at every corner. And we still do not know how to communicate scientific uncertainty. Here, topic for your dissertation, Laura. <laughs> Scientific uncertainty. I mean, really, like, what does it mean? How can we acknowledge without diminishing, you know, the trust in the process and so on? But this is something that's really important. Obviously, you all know, we all talk about post-normal science, that we are with those kind of, uh, of issues. We are somewhere where just scientific expertise cannot, you know, really help. But the challenge we have created for ourselves, it's like in academic circles, we think we know better. I do think it's still a problem, even if we do stakeholder involvement and so on. You know, like we call it the challenge, the curse of knowing you are right, right? So how can we, you know, make sure that we do 
you know, what we preach. We tried to do that in this piece with Fred and Pam Ballock, where we were trying to explain that if we are claiming public engagement and participation, we need to be able to also accept that maybe this technology is not going to be accepted and we should go for it. We also need to actually really say, why are we doing public engagement? Just because it's the fad now? Is it because it's good for your career? Why? Acknowledge our goals, acknowledge the outcomes and so on. So it is complicated. I mean, the, the gene drive in the horizon uh, consensus report tried to address some of those questions. That's about CRISPR-Cas9, excellent report if you haven't read it. We try to actually assess how theory meets practice during COVID-19 and how we were changing as we were moving along, but there's literally a lot of work to do. So I'm gonna end uh, in a few minutes with uh, another topic that's bothering me. <laughs> We're gonna say, well, she's bothered by a lot of things. Yes, me. <laughs> so it's the conversion of consumer data, genetics, and AI. And we're not doing research on that, really. We all say, ooh, this is dangerous. But we need research. So the thing that's happening is that we give a lot of data around. Some of these data, we volunteer it, right? You know, we actually say where we are, we put the picture, we actually talk to people and so on. We are like, you know, like constantly asked to be there and we give it. Some of it, you know, is not gonna be, we don't have much choice. You know, we know that US facial recognition, we cover 97% of the party in LA passenger within four years. That was in 2019. And when you go internationally now, that's commonly used and so on, all the data that's encrypted and so on. But there's also some data that we don't give. You know, we haven't agreed to give because we don't read the small lines. And the geofencing of Google is one example of that. You know, like he's, uh, this person, this, <laughs> this person didn't know that, you know, like his back was traced, he has influenced his back and then make him a suspect in a, in a case, right? And so this is really a problem that's been uh, addressed in different publications, uh, the idea of privacy with the geofencing thing. So you have 81 requests for this data in, uh, in Flora in 2018 that jumped to 800 last year. So real problem. Google has been hiring geneticists. Did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that. So why, right? The idea is, oh, we're going to make information much better if we can couple with human data, including genetic data, right? So this is actually something that hasn't been really covered a lot. We have been really vocal in saying, wait a minute, all that COVID surveillance data. Yes, but no, because this is a privacy issue and so on. But now it's coupled with AI. And the idea is that, you know, DeepMind is the Google AI system. They used to have like, you know, like stated ethical guidelines that they were talk about AI. It wasn't really advertised. Where is that board? Where is the, the, the AI, uh, you know, uh, ethics that DeepMind said they were gonna do? I, I mean, you all heard about, you know, like the different, you know, of course, everybody's talking about JTPD and and so on and so forth, but they're much more concerned about other type of things, such as the dilemma, you know, like self-driving cars, he has the ethical dilemma of algorithm morality. How do you teach an algorithm to be morally ethics if we cannot even, you know, game theory and so on, we cannot even agree upon ourselves what it means to be ethical. So I think this is something we should really be concerned about. And at the end of the day, what we should be concerned about 
is actually AI meeting uh, our behavioral data, meeting genetic data. This is been why China and the US are in a big fight right now. You heard that TikTok was uh, canceled. Was it canceled here? Did they ask you to take it away from your computers? Well, at UW Madison, we. Federal employees and devices. Plus state employees too, and professors and state employees. Unless we can prove that we use it for research, which we do. We look at influencers in science topic on TikTok and so on, so we continue doing that. But the idea was that there is, a, 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 you know, the concern that American DNA equal was at risk by uh, foreign uh, powers. And this was, you know, following the trend of China, how is it the name of these people? Is that something that is on the horizon for us? It bothers me. <laughs> and I think like, you know, this center is well placed to study this kind of thing, because I think it's at the heart of where the future is going. In sum, I'm gonna end up here. There are never any clear-cut answers, but, and, and I would argue with you and that, uh, that uh, you know, public engagement may not be, you know, the answer because it's complicated. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, like that knowledge should be co-produced with stakeholders and so on. But the idea is, again, it's like interdisciplinary work, right? We were talking about that. How do you actually meaningfully engage the stakeholders? And how do you have the right one at the table? And who decide who the right ones are? These questions, honestly, I think we have like jumping the co-creation of knowledge and so on and so forth without really thinking about how do you, how do you train researchers to do it? It takes a lot of time and resources to do that co-knowledge production, stakeholder involvement and so on. And I, my fear is that now it's sleep service and not really done on the ground in a way that really produce uh, responsible innovation. So in sum, you know, moving forward, I think science come research can help and should build resilient equitable society, right? Particularly genetics. So responsible innovations, yes, but we need to know what it means in the algorithmic central society. Interdisciplinary is a must, but let's face it, it's hard. Participatory research is great, but how do we do it? And I will stop here. Thank you. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm still Okay, um, I'll let you call on people in the room, and um, if someone's online, I'll just raise my hand. Yes. So uh, the two topics you raised at the beginning about misinformation and trust and failing trust in, in just general institutions, I was wondering when you showed that, when you brought those topics up, um, what the role, you know, in, from a communication science perspective, what is the role for like malicious actors versus just like incompetence? <laughs> You know, this I mean, is such. Does, does the public think it's about people? I mean, misinformation. I think one of the concerns is that it's like intentionally yeah. spreading. So, so you know, like I'm going to be blunt. We don't have a lot of empirical evidence, mm -hmm. and a lot of the statements that are made, including my colleagues, are not based on empirical evidence and more anecdotal evidence. We do have a lot of disinformation. The what's that malicious? A lot from let's say the anti-vax groups, I would claim that I'm not even sure they think they are making it up. I think they convince is right. I think the anti-vax people that think that vaccines are linked to autism and Wakefield, you know, have been wrongly, you know, uh, retracted and so on. I think they convinced of that. 
So I think for me, it's more like a frame of mind that needs to change. You know, like the us versus them, they're wrong and we're right. This is misinformation. This is misinformation. This is not helpful. I think it's more about what's our common goal? We want to, you know, like, you know, even for climate change, when we work in communities and in Wisconsin for climate change and we work with NGOs, rule number one, do not say climate change. Mm -hmm. Sustainability is kind of beginning to be like that too, by the way. It's beginning to have that progressive like connotation. But we talk about resilient community, help this community, you know, like economic, uh, you know, sustainable uh, uh, resilience and so on. So for, for what you're saying, you know, I just wanted to point out that I don't think it's the right angle. It's really like pathologizing the others. As far as like misinformation, disinformation, it has always existed. In the 19th century, when the measles vaccine was created in Britain, there was huge protest saying, let us leave our children alone. I mean, you know, it's so indeed social media makes you move that thing around. Can we know for sure it is just that that actually changed people's beliefs? Or is it because of another reason they're ready to accept that science? So it's a wrong angle in my, in my, in my, uh, Opinion, and I think it's a lot of taxpayer money that goes in a misinformation research that should be better using something else. You answer your question? Yeah. No. Yes. A, a related point, though, is about the, the sort of rhetoric of the trust in science or like science or in the neighborhood. You know, I believe in those. Oh, my God. Things, yeah. You know, and I believe in science. I think you're just saying your American scientist article as well. Yeah. Um, the, but part of that is that the rhetoric of trust in science was it was a science against, frankly, though here's the stake of being the expert, right? <laughs> the, but it was science against no science. I mean, it was an issue of a you know a medical emergency with very little knowledge behind it. The only knowledge there was was virology and vaccine science. And the opposition was so to connect it to the drop in trust overall. That was the end result of a long campaign politically to create distrust in all federal agencies and you know, make the federal government smaller. So, yes, actually. So just a reaction to that. No, no, you but know, you the know, meaning of the trust in science wasn't about trusting big science and all science. It was about this particular particular moment of this kind of politics making um, a distrust in all government, all agencies, all. So, just okay. so I have here a little sticker that you can see yeah. that I put in science is political, not partisan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My point is that I agree with you, and political systems have been around for a long time, and they have political multiple actors that negotiate power on the scene of the political sphere and so on. My point is though. That by making it, by, by embracing rhetoric, like scientists embracing as a counter rhetoric, march for science, trust in science, the little sign that says science is real, is hurting us. Science is real? What does it mean? I know, but science is real. Science is not more real than anything else, right? It's like, so my point was more that, yes, from that side of the political spectrum, that may be the agenda, but the other side didn't react well. And by doing that, they actually created a partisan science. That's not what we want, right? At the end of the day, you know, who, you know who created the EPA? 
right? Conservative and so on. So like that again, I always say that, like, you know, I, I give talks in a lot of political circles. Science should not be partisan. Science should be one or whatever scientific discipline that they brought in the mix of experts. And I think that has hurt the brand of science when scientists and other well-meaning progressive have that whole marching for science, science is real and so on. But you're totally correct. And there's actually good papers that have comment in the way you, you, you are. Yeah. So I think some of that skepticism and distrust and distrust in science is not against science per se. I think it's against scientists. And I think it's easier for some publics to say, I don't try the person, right? Or I don't trust that bad actor, or that person is biased, or that person has their own blind, blind spots. You'd be surprised, actually, that actually when people know scientists, they trust them more. Yeah. And when people feel that a scientist is warm and engaging and listen to them, and you know, they actually trust them more. So the problem that we have is the American public, the majority of them, do not know any scientists. And that's where I was going to go. So I think we do a very poor job. I think we do a very poor job as team science to have influential, relatable messengers that can provide an articulate, relatable, trustworthy message. And I think I think to give the other right the other team such a good opportunity to kind of sow that mistrust or distrust. This scientist is bad. That paper is bad, and all the well, those authors are biased and elements thereof. And I think I think we should counter that. By providing an array of attributes from it in class, I'm like you know, name, name a famous scientist mm -hmm. in time, and name a famous scientist that's currently alive. And it's very sad to see first you know, how short the list is. We do a bad job in that. Totally agree. You get an A. <laughs> so, but it's true. I agree with you. And the thing is that so that's why I'm thinking that you know we always say we need to train the scientists of tomorrow, and the, being the scientist of tomorrow is what GS does. It's not just being in your little discipline, but understanding the policy implication, which doesn't mean, though, that every scientist should be there, be the warmer for the scientists. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, some of them should stay in the lab. I mean, <laughs> and I say that very lovingly, you know, but I mean, certainly, certainly trusted messengers, you know, that are in their communities and that have meaningful relationships, and particularly at the local level, you know, it's extremely important. And uh, I agree with you 100%. Okay, there's a question in the chat from Brian Mallow. It says, Dominique. Oh, Brian, how are you? <laughs> Given the myth of the knowledge deficit approach, do you have some concrete advice or guidance for what to do instead? Yes, Brian. I mean, I did address that a little bit, saying that the problem is that there's no one size fit all answers. Then when I talk to my engineering friends, you know, like actually the knowledge deficit approach completely work. When I talk with other people, you know, you know, it's going to be another approach. It's going to seem very simplistic what I'm going to tell you, but I think he's a good example. Brian is a great communicator. Is starting with listening. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that idea that you know, it's like, but when we say listening, though, it's hard. I talk a lot. So, <laughs> listening means that you're actually hearing people, you know. And to your point, I don't remember. Yeah. So when we say trust the message, that's actually. That if we go to a public meeting and the idea is that we already think we know what decision should be made, people feel that. When I say listening here, it's like, actually, I do care what you have to say, and we're going to listen to it afterwards. And I think that would be the first 
very first part, but we're not trained to do that. And it's, it's linked to my other points about stakeholder involvement, right? That we may unintentionally make some, some groups, you know, build some antagonism that we wouldn't want to do and so on. So I think it could be a really good topic of a thesis. Okay, knowledge deficit, that's not it. Trust deficit, that's not it. Maybe some formation problem, that's not it. So like, how do we, you know, like when, when in the context of a scientific issue, we know how to communicate right values and so on and so forth, but more precisely in a, you know, context of stakeholder involvement, what are the steps? How can we train scientists to do it the best way? It takes time and resources. It's not going to be my talk that's going to train you. It's not going to be one workshop. And my fear right now is people feel, I'm going to take one workshop in science communication, I'm going to be all set. No, you're not. It takes a lot of, of, uh, of learning. Yes. So what do you think about uh, kind of taking it to the next level where you think about intergenerational communication, where you're actually more engaged with the younger children who are going to communicate some of these topics with their parents and grandparents? I'm a strong believer in when we when I say training the, the, the scientists of tomorrow, I'm a strong believer in reforming the K-12 education and how we teach science in, the, in, the, in the schools. And I know, Fred, that you have some, you know, ideas of how going to middle schools and so on to teach another way of teaching genetics and so on. I think it's really reconsider the pedagogical approaches that we have when we teach science. We are, you know, a concept that I study a lot among, uh, along the years is the concept of deference to scientific authority. When you look at textbooks, right, it's like it's like a fact, and it's like, and we know, and we teach you, you rehearse it, and we tell you. There's never like that idea of like you know science in society to some extent, or maybe when they start when they're seniors if they're lucky in high school. But I mean, I think all these uh, you know discussion that we have, we could have them much earlier. And by the way, I said that we should. Uh, blame uh, the, we cannot blame humans and you know, you can actually teach a lot of critical thinker thinking to middle schoolers. I go to middle schools and I go with them and I search and I try to see it. So what do you think? Oh, that's, if you parents think that way, you know, what are your bias? What are your heuristics? Why, why do you trust this thing and so on? So we can teach that, but we don't teach them fast enough when the technology are evolving so fast. So now it's chat GDP, right? So in my in my department, we're trying to integrate that in the classroom. Like we use it for integrating in the classroom instead of having plagiarism. So I don't have a clear-cut answer, but certainly I think we should rethink it well. There was science education at the horizon, where was that big project? Um, where they were actually, there was a big project from the National Academy where the idea was to teach the nature of science very, very early. And also these kind of things to to uh, to younger children, they can get it. They get it. Mm -hmm. To my point of uncertainty and so on. The problem is that they go through that whole knowledge deficit approach to learning science. Then they go to college and then they take a one STS class and like, oh my God, knowledge is socially constructed. So this is too late to some extent, right? Because the majority of people won't go to grad school. Yes. There is a question from Carl online. Carl, if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask. Hi, Dominique. Thanks for the yeah. talk. <laughs> Long time no see. Um, yeah. I've got a question about uh, about trust. Um, are you familiar with the concept called the trust equation? 
Um, I've seen that promoted in the plant biotech sphere uh, uh, as a way of trying to present yourself as more trustworthy. But whenever I try to look up information about where it comes from, it just seems to come from some company and some private information they have. And it always seemed like pseudoscience. Have you heard of it? And what do you think about how? I, uh, I haven't you know, go ahead. Heard, yeah. I've never heard about this. It's so nice to see you, Carl. <laughs> Carl was a PhD minor in science communication at the And uh, uh, so what I heard, not the science, the trust equation, but but the uh, I think, you know, Susanna Priest came up with that idea of it's not about just trust, is a differential of trust. So, for example, I trust geneticists, and but I mistrust academics. So, like, what's the difference there? And that's actually the determinant. Or I trust institutions versus other. So, it's not one trust in a vacuum. It's how you reconcile different type of trust with different actors that are part of the equation. And I think that's actually a, a good way to see it. It's not just trusting in one actor, but it's like trusting all those actors and the differential trust. So, I don't know if that's the priest uh, um, approach that they're measuring there. I can send you that article. Oh, I'd love to uh, learn more. We'll do. Um, Thank you. I wanted to weigh in on Martha's comment in the K-12. Um, about a decade or so ago, the National Science Teachers Association and friends uh, redid the entire K-12 science standards, called the Next Generation Science Standards, to take it yeah. away from that's what that was uh, collection yeah. to inquiry based. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the testing companies have such sway over the way that um, curriculum and development is happening that like that has not integrated into the classrooms effectively at all. And so um, there's so many systems in place, man. So, you know, like uh, that's what my, my yeah, yeah, you're right. So like my slide about there's no clear cut answer and there's no easy solution, right? We do leave and we have to acknowledge we live in a market driven society. We do. So, I mean, the, so, the solutions or like the type of approach we would have in the United States and at the state level and not even the state of the school district level mm -hmm. are very different than, say, the one we would have in Sweden or in France and so on. Right. So I think it's slowly changing. But uh, but it, this has been a big, big problem, like, you know, standardized testing and the money making that's linked to that and so on and so forth has certainly hindered. You know, a change in K twelve. We have to acknowledge that. Totally correct. Yes. Okay. We have two minutes left, and mm -hmm. a question from Patrice in online. I don't Patrice, know if you'd like to unmute yourself. Patrice, oh my God, everybody that I know is <laughs> how is going to Singapore uh, at Syracuse. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, Excellent on the use of genetic engineer potentially. You know to. Uh, uh, to uh, uh, solve sustainability issues. So, you know, like questions such as, you don't like GMOs, but you're a fisherman, would you actually genetic engineer your trout so they would survive in Wisconsin is the climate change? So these kind of issues, Patricia is interested about. <laughs> Thanks for the wonderful presentation today, Dominique. Um, I uh, One of the things that I've been following with a lot of interest is how scientists um, have been communicating in East Palestine about the results of 
toxicology tests and kind of navigating, um, you know, what their test results are saying and public's concerns about about the risks. Do you have some thoughts about what you've been observing um, in that interaction? Well, I wouldn't be able to actually give you a sound answer because I mean, my 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 uh, you know my interpretation would be based on very anecdotal evidence. But certainly, I have a colleague that's been following that, and uh, you know, we've been encouraging him to actually do a research, uh, you know, like method, well designed methodology, sound research around this theme. Certainly, very interesting. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I think there's certainly a lot of the, you know, um, institutional trust issues that you're, you know, that um, uh, you've brought up during this talk. Like, you know, it's not necessarily that people maybe um, are like not trusting the science, but, um, you know, there's concerns maybe with trust in a lot of institutional actors um, that are meant to keep them safe. But then, you know, also, um uh, I think it's interesting to, you know, to see, uh, you know, it makes me think about like subjective factors that influence people's risk perceptions um, as well. Kind of, you know, differences with that and technical assessments of risk are, are things that have come to mind a lot while kind of watching this unfold. Yeah, Patrice and I worked on risk-related research, risk communication research, and certainly the objective versus subjective uh, approach to risk assessment is something we still battling, mm -hmm. you know, you know, how qualitative versus quantitative measures. We can uh, answer very well the wrong question, right, with technical information and so on. Yeah, thank you, Patrice. That uh, that made, that puts, uh, that reminds me to follow up on that with my colleague. Okay. Well, thank you. I think we're out of time. So everyone help me thank Dominique for It's kind of nice to actually hear applause. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, thank you very much. And if you're going to stay for lunch, um, give us five minutes. Uh, I'm in transition. <laughs> thank you, everyone, online. See you next week.